Father, I ask that you would speak through my lips and think through my mind today to reveal to us who we are in Christ and what belongs to us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. I'm going to start this morning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. I've got about three different messages stirring around on the inside of me. And usually that means there's specific things that the Lord has for different ones. But we'll start as what in the place that seems fit for us to go and see what happens after that. Genesis 1:26, and God said, Let us make man in our own image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over, over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. God made man for one sole purpose, and that was for him to have authority here on the earth. Now, I know there's a lot of times we romanticize things um, and talk about how that God sought for fellowship and things like that. But, folks, you've got to realize if God wasn't complete without man's fellowship, then God's not God. The very fact that he is God means he doesn't lack anything. He doesn't need anything. He's not dependent on anything. He's God. Well, then if he's not dependent on us, even though the Bible tells us about the joys of fellowship with him, he would certainly have recognized that as well. But if he doesn't need us, then what's the point? Why create us? You'll never find any other place in the Bible that identifies why other than this verse of Scripture right here. God created man for the purpose, the sole purpose of having authority on the earth. What did the devil come to steal? Authority on the earth. He doesn't care anything about you and me personally. He couldn't care less whether we live or die outside of the fact that if we've committed ourselves to the Lord and are doing his will on the earth, then we become a threat to him in whatever ability we have to open the eyes of the lost. God created man for the sole purpose of having authority. Now, when Jesus came on the earth, and the Bible tells us about in Matthew chapter 4 about when Jesus was tempted of the devil, he went into the wilderness for 40 days and came back and started his ministry in power. But when he was tempted of the devil out in the wilderness, one of the things the devil said he gave him three temptations. One of them was he showed him the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said, all the glory of these things will I give to you if you'll bow down and worship me. Luke's account gives a, a detail that I find very interesting. When the devil showed him all these kingdoms of the world, these world governments, in a moment of time and offered to give him the glory of these things, he said, because that's what's been delivered to me. The devil referenced his authority relative to world governments. Well, who gave him that authority? If he hadn't had the authority, it wouldn't have been a bona fide temptation. And Jesus would have said, you and I both know you don't have that. But the fact that Jesus answered him in the manner that he did 
He said, it is written, thou shalt worship God, and him only shalt thou serve. That indicates that Jesus recognized that the devil did have authority when it comes to world governments. God had already given authority to Adam and Eve. He didn't take it back when they fell. So where did the devil get authority over uh, uh, concerning world governments? He got it from Adam. Now, does that mean Adam didn't have any authority where world governments is concerned? No, the Bible doesn't teach us that at all. It tells us that we have authority and we can't operate in authority here on the earth, even unto the degree that it was first given to us. And folks, that's why the devil has to deceive. It's going to be such a shock to many Christians, maybe most Christians, when they get to heaven and realize that they never lost authority in the earth. And the only way, the only weapon the devil really has is deception. He's called the great deceiver. If Satan has all authority in the earth, which a lot of Christians seem to think he does, then why doesn't he exercise control over the church to shut us down? Every time he's tried that, it's failed. Man has authority. Man will always have authority here on the earth. Then what's the devil's deception all about? To get us to either misuse our authority or not exercise it at all. So that means the devil has to deceive mankind in order to exercise authority over the governments of the earth like he wants to. What I'm saying is simply this. If man didn't have the authority to operate in this earth over the devil, then man would never be able to do anything good. But you know as well as I do that in world history, there have been some excellent leaders, Christian leaders, morally based leaders that have hindered the devil from doing what he wants to do. Well, if the devil has the authority over world governments, how could that possibly be? From the beginning, Satan had to deceive man in order to achieve his goals. He still does. And if he can't deceive us, he can't control us. Jesus talked about the end times in Matthew 24. He was walking through Herod's temple and the disciples were showing him all the things of the temple and remarking how beautiful and wonderful things were and all that kind of stuff. Jesus was unimpressed. The reason he was unimpressed was because that temple, Herod's temple, had been bought and paid for by Herod in an attempt to exercise authority or rule or govern over Israel. It wasn't built as a building dedicated to God. It was a sign of Herod's political and, and financial wealth. So Jesus was unimpressed. 
And he told them that there would come a time where not one stone would be left upon another from that temple. Well, that happened in 70 A.D. when Rome sacked Jerusalem and took apart the temple to get to the mortar that was between the stones because Herod had sprinkled gold dust in that mortar to be used for the temple. So they extracted every bit of gold from the mortar between the stones and there was not one stone left upon another, just like Jesus said. Then when Jesus was telling them about answering the disciples' question about the end times, the first thing he said was, take heed that no man deceive you. Take heed that no man deceive you. That means we have an opportunity, we have a right, we have the ability to not be deceived. But we have to take heed to it. We have to give heed to that which is right and that which is true. I believe, folks, in the last days, these last days we, were in, we are in, I believe firmly with all of my heart that the battle cry of this church is and will be, be not deceived. Then he lists some things that were going to take place. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. I thought I had three messages. Looks like I have four. Verse 3, and as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, what, when shall these things be? He's talking about the destruction of Herod's temple. And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Notice that they recognize those as two separate events. The sign of Jesus coming and then the signs of the end of the world. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. We've talked about this numerous times. Nobody's going to get pulled away by somebody saying, I am the Christ. So what is he talking about here? He's talking about taking heed or avoiding deception. But then he starts talking about people that are claiming some things that are God that are not. That would be like the church taking a position that God was all about something that the Bible didn't say that he was. Or that the true manner or method of, of worshiping God was some new far out idea contrary to what the Bible says. So he says, take heed that you be not deceived. And some of that uh, deception is going to come from the church itself. from those claiming to be spokesmen or representatives for God when they're not. He says in verse 6, And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation. That word nation is the word ethnos. It means race riots and wars between races. For races shall rise against races, races and kingdom, countries against countries. 
And there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Now, folks, an earthquake's not deceptive. It either is or it isn't. Famines are not deceptive. People are either starving or they're not. So when he talks about deception, not everything on the list is subject to deception. Notice one of the things he mentions was pestilences. That is the word for plagues. Sometimes used in relation to sickness. Not always, but sometimes used in relation to sickness. Now, folks, sickness is sickness. Where's the deceptive element when it comes to sickness? Well, folks, we've got a deceptive element taking place right now regarding the coronavirus. You know, one of the hardest things to do right now is to find the death rate of coronavirus. You can check with the CDC, Center for Disease Control, and there's all kinds of articles that are talking about the death rate, but they never spell it out. They conducted a study back in toward the end of August this year and determined that the number of deaths caused by the coronavirus, which at that time was 153,000, was inaccurate. They recognized from their own data that the death rate was different than what they were publicizing. It's kind of like the news organization that wrote the article that said coronavirus kills two in meth lab explosion. You'll get that in a second. <laughs> coronavirus kills two in meth lab explosion. That's exactly what their article, the principle of their article. They identified that only six to seven percent, six or seven percent of the 153,000 deaths were, were caused by coronavirus in, uh, alone. Now, there are cases, many cases, it seems, where the coronavirus triggers something else, a pre-existing condition. And so it was a catalyst, but not the cause. Well, what did the CDC do? Did the CDC say... Well, 6 or 7% of the 153,000 deaths would be somewhere around eight or 9,000 people. Did they revise their numbers down in the death total? No. And now that number is somewhere in excess of 200,000. But by the, the Center for Disease Control's own studies, that 200,000-plus uh, 200, deaths would be somewhere around the 15,000 mark or count. I saw something here recently on the, uh, on the news. I think it was right after President Trump was diagnosed with coronavirus. And it showed the 
breakdown of deaths, coronavirus deaths by age. I asked them if they could put that up on the screen. I'm not sure that if they can do it or not. But if they can, can you put it up? There it is. Notice the different categories, the different age ranges. Certainly the highest is the 70 plus. But folks, look at what that number is. If we flip that around, take the average of all these age ranges and flip it around to recovery rate, the recovery rate for coronavirus is 99.99% of the people. Statistically, that number is negligible. 99.99% of the people that are infected with coronavirus recover. How do you have a pandemic with that? The true and actual number is, yes, is less than yellow fever. Yellow fever has, uh, is mostly over in Africa, so we don't know much about that. It's not reported very much, for certainly. But every year there's about 200,000 cases and about 30,000 people die. That's every year. According to the CDC's own studies and reports, that's twice as much as the actual death toll from the coronavirus. We're being told a lie. Doesn't mean coronavirus isn't real. Doesn't mean that not many people have died or nobody has died from it. And any number, any, uh, no matter how small, is a tragedy, especially if we can stop it. But the fear that's being ginned up, and it's not being ginned up by the death toll or the death rate. Remember Farr's Law. He was a, a, an episiologist in the 19th century. And he developed a, a law that's still used in virology even today. Farr's Law is the death rate is a fact. Anything else is inference. Well, the reports or the fear that's being generated by the media now is not about the death rate. The death rate's not climbing anywhere in the world. The number of cases is spiking. But the reason the number of cases is spiking is because testing is being done on a much larger scale than it was during the height of the, of the so-called pandemic. When Jesus told them the signs of his coming and the signs of the end of the world, he talked about race riots, he talked about wars against countries or between countries. He talked about famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. But then he said this. I think it's verse 14. 
He said, in this gospel of the kingdom, this gospel of the kingdom, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for or with a witness, meaning with power and evidence, and then shall the end come. Folks, I don't know why I'm made this way. A lot of people wish I wasn't, I'm sure. But I cannot help but try to point out things that are taking place. Things that are being used by organizations and in some cases governments to try to deceive people. I don't know why, but I cannot not sound the alarm on deception. I, I can't help it. I remember the good old days when you could just preach the word. <laughs> without having to include so many of the things that are going on around us. I want you now to turn with me to Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul's writing to the church, beginning in verse 1. He said, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. Notice what Paul's saying. Paul is saying the reason that I'm talking to you about these things is because we will be gathered unto the Lord. Folks, Jesus is coming back. He is coming back. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor letter as from us as that day of Christ is at hand. He doesn't want us operating in fear. And folks, we've said this over and over again. The antidote for fear is knowledge of the truth. Now the truth about the coronavirus is that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses and with his stripes were healed. If that's true, there's no reason for any of us to be taken in by the fear-mongering of any group or organization. But notice the method of, of deception that Paul calls out here in this second verse. He said, if you get a letter that was, is purported to be from us, don't pay attention to it. Don't be taken in from it or by it. Well, that must have happened or else he wouldn't have referenced it. So somebody, whoever wrote the letter that he refers to and said that it was from Paul when it wasn't, somebody has joined in the fight to deceive the church. Remember, Jesus said, take heed that no man deceive you. Take heed that no man deceive you. 
So he says, don't be shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word, nor even by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means. That sounds like Jesus. For that day shall not come except there be a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. And he's talking about the Antichrist. The word Antichrist is used four times in the Scripture, and none of them by Paul. All four by John. And he speaks them in the letters that he wrote at the end of his life. There's two times in 1 John chapter 2. There's two times in 1 John chapter 3. And there's one time in 1 John chapter, uh, 1 John, uh, 3 John chapter 2. Paul doesn't use the word of the name Antichrist. But notice what he calls him. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed. That man of sin translation to, translates into the lawless one. The lawless one. Folks, we're starting to hear a lot about law and order relative to the election that's coming up. It's a biblical term. It's a biblical term. So he says there has to be a falling away first. This word falling, the translated falling away is the word apostasy. Now in most cases when the word apostasy is used in the, in the New Testament, it's talking about a falling away from the truth. Or a separation from the gospel of, of Jesus. But the same word that is translated falling away can be used and is used in the scriptures to talk about a catching away. Now, Paul could have used words that were specific to what he meant, whether it's people turning their back on the truth of the gospel or whether it's people being caught up into heaven through the rapture. But he used a word that could be translated either way or both ways. Why is that? Well, as I said, since he had other options that would be more specific, I can't help but believe that it will be both. In other words, according to the Scripture, there are going to be a lot of people in the body of Christ that are, sh that are shaken in mind and troubled and as a result turn loose of their hold on the truth. I'm determined not to be in that crowd. Amen. Let's keep reading. Let no man deceive you by any means for that day shall not come except there be a falling away first and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he has God sitting in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That takes place at the midpoint of the tribulation. Remember you not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? And now you know what withholdeth, that he might re be revealed in his time. There's something that's holding him back. 
There's something that's holding the Antichrist from being revealed. For the mystery of iniquity does already work. Only he who now letteth, or withholdeth, or restraineth, only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. This phrase, taken out of the way, is an interesting phrase in the uh, Greek, the original Greek. Because the word taken means to cause to be. The word out means its original origin or place. And the word way means middle. So when you put those words together to translate this verse of Scripture, it literally means that something will occur that will cause the one who's restraining to be removed out of its place which is the place between God and the devil and caught up into God's presence. Taken out of the way refers to the rapture. The action of the rapture of the church. So that's telling us that we're in the middle. We're in the middle of things. The church is the one that's restraining. The church is the one that's withholding. Now folks, I marvel at this. Because there is so much disunity in the body of Christ. There is so much, or so little I should say perhaps, there is so little authority being exercised by, by the church in this world. The biggest reason for that I think is because most Christians don't know they have authority. You can't exercise what you don't know you have. And the, the subject of the authority of the church just really isn't spoken about in most church circles. So, Paul's saying by the Holy Ghost, there's something, someone literally that's withholding the appearance of the Antichrist, the lawless one. But the time is coming when he'll be taken out of the way. And then shall thy wicked be revealed. That wicked be revealed. He's talking to the Antichrist again. Whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth. And shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan. With all power and signs and lying wonders. Lying wonders refers to deceit. So Paul is saying that the Antichrist will appear to do wonders and miracles. But they're fake miracles. It's not true power. But by virtue of the fact that he calls them lying wonders. Indicates the deception. That will exist in the world at that time. And at that time is after the church goes. But it's always struck me as interesting. And really I got it one day in prayer. I guess my thinking, I hadn't really identified it very much, but I guess my thinking was such 
that when the church was raptured, immediately the tribulation period would begin like the next day or something. But it occurred to me, and I believe it was brought to me by the Holy Ghost, that the same conditions that would exist after the church was raptured would probably be growing and taking root even before the church leaves. So when we see what the condition is immediately following the church's exit, that should or could be at least an indicator to us of what we could expect before he goes, before we go, when we're caught up. Verse 10, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. Notice verse 11. And for this cause, a willing rejection of the truth. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Folks, there, come a point, there comes a point where God says, okay, have it your way. Remember God's unchanging law in Numbers chapter 14, verse 21. It says, as truly as I live, the, the whole earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. And verse 27 says, as truly as I live, saith the Lord, as they have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto them. Two things are identified in God's unchanging law. The phrase, as truly as I live, is the key. There are two times, those two that we just referred to in Numbers chapter 14, verse 21 and 27. Those are the only two times where the Bible talks about or uses that phrase, as truly as I live. That makes those special to me. Because he separates those from all the other law of the prophets and and the law of Moses. He separates those as having the characteristics that God himself and the life of God has. Well, how truly does God live? What does that phrase mean? It very simply means that the two characteristics of God, which are that he is eternal and unchanging, apply to these principles or these laws in themselves. So God says it's an eternal, unchanging law. Two of them. The two eternal and unchanging laws are very simply, the earth will be filled with the glory of God. Folks, that's not just a promise. It's a guarantee. It's God swearing an oath. And when he couldn't swear by anything greater than himself, he swore by himself. He swore that his glory would be manifest in all the earth. He swore that all the earth would see the glory of God. And then the other one, again in verse 27 of Numbers chapter 14, as truly as I live, saith the Lord, as they have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto them. The principle of faith is unchanging and eternal. To believe with your heart and say with your mouth. Your words determine what you will have. It's an unchanging and eternal law of God. Folks, we might as well learn how to operate in faith here. Because we're going to need faith forever. 
those immutable laws of God will never change no matter what comes after this age is over faith in God will always be a part of who we are because we're in him so there comes a point where God says to those that reject the truth okay have it your way and at that point, at that point, the delusion of the world takes on a whole new meaning. Now, there are things that are being told to us now for the purpose of deceiving us. And they frustrate the heck out of me. One being climate change. You know, after a while, you begin to wonder, is anybody really stupid enough to think that putting trillions of dollars into stopping climate change is really going to make a difference? Now, I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt, but I really think we ought to start on something small. And here's what I mean by that. Let's take a million dollars and give it to somebody and tell them to make it rain. If it doesn't work on a little scale, it won't work on a big scale. And so the idea that man can do anything to influence the climate, either destroy it or turn it around for good, is maddening to me. And then you get situations like the forest fires here in California. Thank God they're not in our area. But then politicians come out and say, Mother Earth is angry. <laughs> this shows that climate change is real. Folks, the only thing the forest fires show is that dead wood, dead wood burns up. That's it. Get rid of the dead wood through proper forest management and you won't have near as much climate change. But things like that are maddening to me because I'm all about truth. I don't care what the truth is. I don't care what, I, what of my own thinking I have to change to conform to the truth. I'm about the truth. Amen. And I really wish that there were more honest people in places of, of, well, not only government, but in other organizations as well that we're interested in the truth too. We hear a lot about following the science. That seems to be a catchword to use when you don't have any evidence to back up your claim. But this is where the world's going. And with the deception that we see taking place around us that we can already recognize as the work of the devil. Can you imagine what it'll be like after the church is out of here? As I said, I, I grew up thinking that if the rapture happened on Saturday, then the tribulation began on Sunday. But there's really nothing in the Bible that tells us that. It's possible that could be the way that it goes, but it's also possible that it could be that there's a period of time, maybe several years between the rapture of the church and the beginning of the tribulation period. 
If that's true, can you imagine the state of the world between those two events? There's no church. There's no power of the name of Jesus that's holding the devil back. There's no telling what would be the, the condition of the world at that point in time. But it means there would be no pushback on any lie that's told. The truth won't matter. The media will be able to claim and print and produce whatever they want to even more than they do now because for sure we know they'll be left. I don't think any newsroom will be depopulated by the rapture. I hope I'm wrong on that. But if I am wrong on that, I wish they'd start doing their job now. Notice what the Holy Ghost told Paul about the end time. Look with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Beginning in verse 1. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. This word perilous means dangerous. But it also means strength reducing. Now folks let me take just a minute and hit on that for a little bit. We have to recognize that from this point forward, everything that happens spurred on by the devil's agenda is specifically designed to, redu to reduce your strength. Why does the devil want to reduce the church's strength? Well, remember what we said before. It's all about authority. If your strength is reduced, you're going to be less likely to either know what your authority is or hold fast to your authority or utilize your authority. Remember, Jesus talked about the different types of ground in the parable of the sower sowing the word. He said the thorny ground were those that were affected by affliction or persecution. I guess that's the stony ground. Well, anyway, one of the parts of the ground. He said was effect affected by affliction and persecution. In other words, affliction and persecution was designed to reduce the strength of those in that category. Notice why Paul says these are strength-reducing times. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection. Many times people use this phrase and think that it's talking about homosexuality, but it's not. It's talking about family affection. In other words, it's referring to the destruction of the nuclear family. Until just the, over the last couple of weeks, the website of Black Lives Matter organization included that as one of their goals, the destruction of the nuclear family. They scrubbed their website a couple of weeks ago, so I guess 
They didn't want to be known for that anymore. But folks, there's a great work taking place and has been taking place for a long time specifically designed to destroy the nuclear family. You get rid of the importance of the parents in the home and you can guarantee that it will result in lawlessness. Without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce despisers of those that are good. This word fierce in verse, uh, verse 3 means savage. If you want to know what that is, just look at some of the tweets that have taken place since President Trump was diagnosed with the coronavirus. People aren't even holding back from saying they hope he dies. Now, it used to be not so long ago that you wouldn't say things like that, even if you thought it. But hatred and savagery seems to be the accepted notion of the day. Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. So we see that the Antichrist is a man of lawlessness. We see the lawlessness is taking place in our country right now. And you've got a political party that won't even denounce the violence. From openly aggressive really terrorist organizations that are working in our country. This whole idea about defunding the police is a work of the devil, an agenda point of the devil that who in the world would have ever thought could get to this place just a few short years ago. But what happens if you defund the police? Well, a couple of cities are finding out. And lawlessness just increases. One of the translations, and I should say paraphrase, it's really not a translation, but one of the paraphrases, uh, versions of the Bible, talk about the Antichrist, but call him the anarchist. And really the Antichrist, if you read the book of Revelation and study it, the Antichrist is not so much about world government as he is just his own thing. His own power and his own purpose. The things that are taking place around us are designed by the devil to reduce our strength. To reduce our strength. One of the things Jesus said before he went to the cross, he was talking about, well, he was talking about certain parables. One was the unjust judge. But then he made this, uh, this statement. He said, nevertheless, when the Son of Man shall return, shall he find faith on the earth? 
shall he find faith on the earth? Folks, God doesn't change. Every place that Jesus ministered in the three years of his earthly ministry, he went looking for faith. When he came to the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5, he saw the crippled man waiting for the water to be troubled by the angel because the first one in got healed. He went to him looking for faith. He said, wilt thou be made whole? God's always looking for faith. Smith Wigglesworth said that God would pass over a million people to get one person that's believing. Well, what are we to do? Turn with me to James chapter 1. Verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect in entire wanting or lacking nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man, the unbelieving man, the unstable man, for let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Count it all joy when you're attacked with sickness. Count it all joy when you're attacked with lack. Count it all joy when you see unrest around you. Count it all joy when you see the enemy advancing his agenda. Count it all joy no matter what you see or what you feel. Count it all joy. Now it's not going to be joy. And that's why you have to count it as joy. In other words. The joy that he's talking about. Is not feelings driven. It's truth driven. We can count it all joy. Because of what Jesus has done for us. Not because of the circumstances. We see around us. We can count it all joy. Because of the truth of God's word. We can count it all joy no matter what it looks like. Well, let's see if the Bible confirms this. Look with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Beginning in verse 16, it says, Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Notice he mentions rejoicing or giving thanks twice and praying once. Folks, these last days are days that we have to put on the joy of the Lord. Amen. The reason you have to put it on is because there's not too much evidence around us. But that's real faith, isn't it? 
believing and speaking according to what the word says and not according to what we see or feel? I wonder if that's the faith that Jesus is wondering if he'll find when he comes back. Turn with me to Acts chapter 16. Where do we want to start here? Let's start in verse 16. And it came to pass as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination or fortune telling met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days. But Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. And when her masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace under the rulers and brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. Folks, that claim was, was a lie. That's not what Paul and Silas were doing at all. But it cost them a beating and an overnight stay in jail. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises. Now, folks, they're in jail. They're beaten. Their backs are hurting. They're probably held in stocks and chains in such a way that is uncomfortable at the very least, painful, probably. What have they got to give thanks for? What in the world do they have to sing praises to God about? And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately everyone's, all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. I'm not sure that that's a normal earthquake. I can understand how the, the prison doors would be opened by the earthquake, but everybody's chains falling off. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a, a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. What are they all still there for? And not just Paul and Silas, what are the other prisoners there for? There must have been something about what they heard Paul and Silas pray and sing praises about that caused them to realize this earthquake, even though it freed them, 
they didn't move a lick. Could I suggest that the glory of the Lord was seen in that prison? Could I suggest that this is at least one way that the Bible gives us an example of with the glory of the Lord being seen? Well, if the glory of the Lord broke prison chains and opened prison doors in the book of Acts days, then why couldn't it open doors and break the chains that hold people bound today? Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. This is Paul writing back to the people of the city in which he was just in that we read in Acts chapter 16. That was the city of Philippi, the chief city of Macedonia. So when Paul writes back to them in verse 6, he says, Be careful for nothing. That word careful means anxious. Don't be anxious or have anxiety about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and mind through Christ Jesus. When Paul writes back to the church at Philippi, they know about his first time there. They know that he was put in prison beaten and put in prison because he got this little girl delivered from the power of the devil. That was his crime. To deliver somebody, this young girl, from the bondage of the devil. They knew that he was beaten. The city of Philippi knew that he was put in jail. And they know how he got out of jail. And the Holy Ghost gives us a record so we can do the same thing. Be careful for nothing. Don't be anxious or anything. Troubled in mind, as Paul said, writing to the Thessalonians. Don't be shaken or troubled in mind. Be careful for nothing. But in everything, in every situation, in every test, in every trial, in every adversity, let your request be made known unto God with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. Folks, if the church of the last days, which I believe we are, if the church that's here on the earth, when Jesus comes back, I have to believe that's us. If that church is going to be a conduit for the unchanging and eternal law of God, where he said the whole earth shall be filled with his glory, then we're going to have to be a church of thanksgiving. Amen. We're going to have to be a church that counts it all joy. Yes. We're going to have to be a church that rejoices evermore, prays without ceasing, and in everything Woo. give thanks. Thank you. Now that's on us. Yes. 
God didn't force Paul and Silas to pray at midnight in Philippi in the prison. They could have sat there and just bemoaned their fate, accused God of not being fair, called out that they were being discriminated against unjustly, unfairly. But they had a choice. And it's the same choice you and I have. They chose to pray and to sing praises unto God. Their way works when it comes to getting out of prison. And that way will always work for us too. Be careful for nothing. But in everything. In everything give thanks. In everything give thanks. In everything, give thanks. Folks, the tougher things get, the more we need to rejoice because God saw we were tough enough to make it. In everything, give thanks. Let's all stand. One of the ways that the devil will use against us One of the ways he tries to deceive us is to keep us from using our authority. There was a time in Israel's history where they were being forced into captivity to the Babylonians, I believe it was. And as the, capti- as the Babylonians led them captive to their own land, they said of Israel, we've heard about your singing. We've heard about the way that you guys sing songs. That was what set apart Israel in those days from the rest of the world. And then the captives, the, the captors said, sing us your songs. We want to hear more about your songs. <clears throat> and Israel said, how can we sing our songs in the land of the enemy? And it says, they hang their harps on the willows. They set aside their musical instruments. That was their choice. When if they had recognized the eternal and unchanging law of God, they should have begun singing there more than any other time or any other place. The devil wants you to feel so bad about what's going on that you fail to exercise your authority on the earth and you're the only one that has it. So that you and I fail to exercise our authority and remove the song from our lips. To keep from being a church of thanksgiving. And over and over again the Bible talks about when Israel began to sing and to praise the Lord said ambushments. If you rob yourself of your songs of praise and thanksgiving... You're robbing yourself of victory. Jonah said it this way from the belly of the fish. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercies. Those that allow their circumstances to dictate whether or not they praise God fail to see the deliverance of God. So we see two different situations and two different choices. Israel chose to put their hearts, hang their hearts on the willows. Paul and Silas chose to pray 
in the middle of their trouble, in their darkest hour, and to sing praises unto God. You're going to have to make the same choice, folks. We all do. Let's lift our hands and thank God for his goodness. Father, we bless you. We magnify you. We count it all joy. You know things aren't the way that we'd want them to be. But we rely on your word. We declare that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses and with his stripes we're healed. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Father, that we are healed. We thank you, Father, that the silver and gold is yours and the cattle on a thousand hills belong to you. So we thank you that Jesus was chastised for our peace. And we have plenty. We thank you, Father, for spectacular increase in these last days. We thank you, Father, for the peace of God that keeps our hearts and minds because of what Jesus did. We thank you, Father, for the privilege to stand strong in faith with all that's going around us and with all that's being threatened by the devil to do. We rejoice. We bless you, Father. We lean back on your strength. We choose to be strong in you. We bless you, Holy Father. We bless you, Holy Father. We magnify your holy name. We magnify your holy name. We magnify the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. 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 Well, I've never done this before, what we're going to do right now. <laughs> so, 
I'm going to sing, praise the Lord, and now you sing, praise the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endures forever, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, he is good, his mercy endures. Praise his name. We worship you. We magnify. We glorify his name. His mighty name. We worship. We praise him. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. We worship you. Bless his name. Hallelujah. Lord, we do magnify your name. We glorify you, Lord Jesus. We glorify your righteousness, Father. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Well, say it with me. The Lord is good, and His mercy endures forever. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Amen. It's been good to be in the presence of the Lord this morning, hasn't it? Hallelujah. Let's magnify him one more time. Hallelujah. We magnify you, Jesus. We exalt you, Holy Father. Holy Father. Holy Father. Hallelujah. Amen. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.